Well, good morning once more. Please open with me in your copy of the Scriptures to 2 Thessalonians. Today we will, as Pastor Ben mentioned, begin Paul's second epistle to this fledgling church. And we'll cover the first chapter today. Starting in verse 1, Paul writes, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith and all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul has one central point in this passage, and that is that Christians should be encouraged by their endurance of affliction in the present as it makes them fit for God's righteous judgment in the future. Christians should be encouraged by their endurance of affliction in the present because it makes them fit for God's righteous judgment in the future. Paul starts out the letter very similarly to how he started 1 Thessalonians. Paul, Silas, which is Silvanus, and Timothy, uh, he, he mentions his, his highly recognizable uh, grace to you. He doesn't mention it. He uses it, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Very similar to 1 Thessalonians. And on most accounts, that's likely because 2 Thessalonians was written only, according to most commentators, a couple of months some commentators a couple of weeks, but I think a couple of months uh, is probably more likely after First Thessalonians. So Second Thessalonians, remember the situation here. They have written to Thessalonica after having Paul had to leave uh, quickly. They've written to Thessalonica, and then they have received a letter from Timothy, who has come back, brought a letter, or an encouraging report, that is. And so they wrote First Thessalonians in response to what Timothy brought. We don't know how exactly they have heard uh, a response to First Thessalonians, but they have responded to 1 Thessalonians, and there are still some concerns. Um, and then this is a response to that correspondence. That makes up 2 Thessalonians. And so 
uh, we, we see that he starts with, again, similarly to 1 Thessalonians, thanksgiving. He's thankful for them. He's thankful for them. If you fa- in fact, if you turn back and look at 1 Thessalonians 1-2, he starts, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, where here it is, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. As is right. So he adds this, we, we, they add, he adds this oughtness to it. It's appropriate. We should be doing this. Not just we are, as a matter of fact, doing this, but because of what you're, because of what's happening here, it is right, not just good, that we give thanks to God for this. Why is that? Why is that? It is because the 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 one of the central messages of First Thessalonians is largely being put into place already. He says, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for another is increasing. But if you recall, that is exactly what he exhorted them to do in First Thessalonians two times. First Thessalonians 3, starting in 11. Now may God and may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you. You jump over to chapter 4, you read 9 and 10. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers and throughout Macedonia, but we urge you brothers to do this all the more. And he says, your faith is growing abundantly. The Greek word here is really well translated in the ESV. It's not just that it's growing like a a tree. This is a precipitous growth. This is significant growth. This is meaningful growth. And nevertheless, it is still a kind of growth that 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 is able to be accurately described as such in the span of a couple months. It's pretty remarkable. It's pretty remarkable. Faith is not static. Faith is not static. Listen to what John Stott says here. I love this. I just want to share this. He says, we tend to speak of faith in static terms as something like we either have or have not. I wish I had your faith, we say, like I wish I had your complexion, as if it were a genetic endowment. But faith is a relationship of trust in God, and like all relationships, is a living, dynamic, growing thing. There are degrees of faith, as Jesus implied when he said, you of little faith, and I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. It's similar to love. We assume rather helplessly that we either love somebody or we do not. And that we can do nothing about it. But love also, like faith, is a living relationship whose growth we can take steps to nurture. And this is what's happening in the church at Thessalonica as a result of what Paul has exhorted them to do. And in one sense, they were already doing And He says, we give thanks to you. And what does he do as a result? Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God. We boast about you in in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith and all of your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. He's bragging about them in the churches. We don't know exactly how that happened. Was it other letters? Was it word of mouth? Paul certainly was a busy guy. He had a lot of people coming and going, wanting to talk with him. Don't know exactly how he bragged in the churches, given that he was at Corinth. But he's talking up the Thessalonians, and he calls attention to the fact that what is so encouraging and exemplary about their growth in love and faith is that it comes in the midst of persecution. It's not just a growing faith. It's not just an abundantly growing faith. That would be awesome. 
But this is an abundantly growing faith amidst persecution. That's what he says. Your steadfastness in faith in all of pers- in, in, in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Now, as we discussed in 1 Thessalonians, most scholars, historians believe this to be a reference not to physical imprisonment or torture or death, but a kind of social persecution. They're being ostracized. They are, as we heard, what did Jeremy say, a, a, a foreign man's religion or something? That they, uh, they are being persecuted socially. And so it's appropriate to point out once more an application here that although we don't suffer as Christians, like many of our brothers and sisters around the world, there is a legitimate category in Pauline thought for social and cultural persecution. Um, and that is a still a real kind of persecution. So just because we have a cakewalk compared to Christians living in Saudi Arabia does not mean we need to pendulum swing and say, no, we don't really, there's not really any Christian suffering or persecution at all. Jesus said that you would be hated by all nations. So whenever there's going to be a legitimate Christian witness, there's going to be opposition to that. And, and Jeremy gave a great, was giving great examples, uh, gave a great example in the testimony that we heard there. So he is thankful for them. He boasts over them in their suffering amidst persecution. And then Paul transitions to the meat of the passage, which we are going to find ourselves returning to space, which by now we should be very familiar, coming out of 1 Thessalonians. He says, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. By far the most difficult interpretive call anyone has to make interpreting this passage is, what does this refer to? You probably, it probably caught your ear as ambiguous when I read it. Steadfastness, that, you're, that we have faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of God since indeed he just keeps going and going. What is the what does the this refer to? What is the evidence? There are two views, two, two, two main opposing views. The first view is that what this refers to is exclusively what's down further in the passage, this view of judgment that we see. That is the evidence. The evidence is what I'm was is the evidence of the judgment of God is the judgment of God. Essentially is what it reduces to. Um, it's, It's what we're about to hear about. It's about what Paul's about to talk about. The opposing view, which is certainly the majority view, is that the this refers backwards to what he's just said, which is by far the most natural understanding when you see a a this. um, That the increasing of faith and love despite persecution is evidence of God's righteous judgment. You're going to continue, you're continuing to demonstrate your faith as those afflicted. Okay, you're going to be faithful and steadfast, which that will serve to clarify and demonstrate that at the end of the day, God's a just judge. Um, there, there are arguments for both positions. There are, a few, there are a few reasons that lead most commentators, and certainly myself, to hold to that the second position that I just mentioned. Let me just tell you why. Because it's a big, I can't, I can't just assume this, because it makes or breaks the interpretation, I would say, uh, certainly of this part of the passage. First is simply the awkwardness of starting a passage which in an, with an indefinite pronoun that doesn't refer to anything before it. This is evidence and and it not referring to anything that's been talked about before. Okay? When you say that well, even when we say this in regular conversation it's a, there's an implied object here that's already in the in the uh, already in the thought space. 
on this interpretation, on the first interpretation, that's not the case. The second is that uh, there is a similar, though not identical, concept in Philippians. Paul tells the church at Philippi in Philippians 1, chapter 27, 28, uh, verses, excuse me, 20, 27, 28. He says he wants them to be of one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by their opponents. And then he uses the same word for evidence. This is evidence to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Okay? So, so no, notice here, it's not evidence of God's judgment, his just judgment explicitly, but he appeals to their endurance under affliction as a kind of evidence of how things are going to turn out in the end. Okay? From their side, 2 Thessalonians is going to say how it's going to turn out in the end from God's perspective and how that justifies him. So the idea is that the endurance of Christian suffering persecution is evidence of how believe not evidence for believers suffering in that exact moment but it's evidence of how believers are rewarded with salvation while persecutors are rewarded with affliction. God is allowing the wicked to triumph temporarily just how he allowed the evil of the Amorites to reach its fullness. Remember that? He tells Abraham, you're going to be enslaved for four generations and your folks are going to come back here because the evil of the Amorites hasn't reached. God is making them ripe for judgment and so that there will be a public vindication of God's justice. You can look and say, yes, obviously this was right. God is making a just judgment here. Final reason is just simply the back half of the verse, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. There's, clear, there's clearly a link. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom. Okay? The, the reading this refers, referring only to what's moving forward doesn't really have a great answer for this. Uh, you know, what, to explain the relationship of evidence of the just judgment of God and that you may be made worthy. How, is God, how or why is God making you worthy? He's going to judge everyone at the end. So how is He making me, so how is he making me worthy? Final judgment's coming. Right? But how does it have to do with making me worthy? It, it, doesn't seem to, it doesn't seem to fit. Instead, what seems to fit much better is God is making you worthy, not in the sense, just to be clear, of grounding your salvation, but making you fit for a just judgment to come where there will be, as one commentator said, a great reversal. This is an evidential mirror. When we get to the end, the people who are afflicting are going to be the ones afflicted. The people who are suffering are going to be the ones relieved. And when we look at God's judgment and then we zoom back in time and look at how things came out in the wash, we say, oh, that is an eye for an eye. That is justice, which is exactly what we see. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well to us. These are some of the harshest words describing God's final posture towards unbelievers in the New Testament, perhaps in the Bible. And if we're honest, maybe it doesn't sit well with us. Because not afflicting those who afflict us is part of the Christian ethic. But here's the thing. God plays by a different set of rules because he's God and we're not. This is the lex talionis principle, the eye-for-eye eye principle, right out of the Old Testament in terms of proportionate justice, where God is going, God is going to do to the God is going to do to them what they have been doing to his people. And it will be perfectly just because he's God. That is the idea. He will look at the people who are afflicting and he will afflict them. He will look to the people who are being afflicted and he will grant them relief. That is justice. That is perfect justice. 
The judgment of God includes rendering unto the wicked according to their works and at the same time includes the promise of relief. Relief from suffering, relief from persecution. And he's quick to include himself in that hope as well, right? And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. Because guess what? Paul had his share of afflictions. That's his hope too. That's his hope too. This is, to put it candidly, this is divine payback. This is divine payback, and it's just because God is God, and you and I are not. And God makes the rules. And this will be perfect judgment. He is going to do unto them as they have done to his sheep, except it will be infinitely worse. Infinitely worse. And if 1 Thessalonians 4 wasn't clear enough, I made a little bit of a deal of this. When is this going to happen? The judgment of these unbelievers. When precisely? If it wasn't clear already, he says, second half of verse 7, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance. That's when it's going to happen. At the revelation, the apocalypse... Where we get, that's why where we get the book of Revelation being Revelation, Apocalypse. At the Revelation, when he is revealed, same word, together with his powerful angelic host, this imagery of might and awesomeness, this flaming glory, this heavenly retinue of awesomeness will accompany him. And then he begins to further tease out the negative side of that just judgment, inflicting vengeance. And this is what we have been expecting throughout the whole of Scripture if we've been listening well. God taking one day, there is a day coming where God will take his vengeance. On whom? Paul doesn't leave it up for speculation. The second half of verse B, uh, 8B rather, the second half of the verse. Who will suffer the affliction? He will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God. On those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. We've got the when and we've got the who. Gospel rejectors. There are some people who suggest that these are two categories of folks. It's really better to understand them as one twofold description of a single category. Okay? People who don't believe don't obey. People who don't obey don't believe. It's a way to describe unbelievers more generally. It's not as though, well, there's one people that get punished because they don't obey, but another people get punished because they don't believe. That's not, that doesn't seem to be what Paul's communicating. People who are not united to Christ, they have not believed the words of the testimony. And so the recipients of this righteous vengeance will be those who are not Christians. What is the nature of the vengeance? We've got a, we've got a when and we've got a who. What about the what? They will suffer, verse 9, the punishment of eternal destruction. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. This is horrifying language. This is horrifying. Let me first mention that there are some theologians throughout the years who've tried to suggest on the basis of the word destruction that, uh, that the, while unbelievers will be punished, eventually they'll be destroyed. They'll be annihilated. So the effects will last forever. The, the effects are eternal, but the conscious torment will not. It's a view... Uh, uh, called annihilationism. 
uh, the, the people will be eventually just annihilated and the uh, consequences of that will be forever. There's no coming back, so to speak. But the experience of the suffering is not forever. And, and standing up a full doctrine, a comprehensive doctrine of the eternal state of the damned is, is beyond the scope of our text today. But I will just say in the text uh, itself, it seems to suggest because of the way eternal destruction is teased out, it suggests that someone is very much in existence because that's how the destruction is described. Listen to the, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. And what characterizes eternal destruction? Being away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. In other words, the people suffering eternal destruction are people who can be described relationally with regards to God. They're away from him. They're away from his might. You can't refer relationally to someone who doesn't exist. The eternal destruction is not something that happens and the effects are eternal. It's something that will be continuing and ongoing forever. It will be away from God. They will be a relationally estranged. And there's, you might say, well, isn't there a theological challenge there? How can you be away from the presence of God if, if God is omnipresent? It's okay. It's fair. It's a fair question. Fair question. But the text clarifies it's not that they're away. It's not that somehow God is not sustaining and somehow not omnipresent in the lake of fire we read about in Revelation, but that these people will endure uh, God's power in terror and judgment. None of the awe-inspiring, merciful, worship-inducing presence of God will they be a part of at all. They will be relationally estranged. They will not even have the slightest bit of common grace. Common grace. So whatever you can say about imagery of hell in the New Testament, people debate, well, is this, there's going to be literal flames. Is this, I mean, Jude, is it, Jude describes the blackest darkness, blackest night, or is it fire? The New Testament authors don't seem particularly concerned with reconciling images. The point is to convey one thing. It's terrible. That's what it conveys. It's not supposed to be giving us a Polaroid snapshot of what it's going to be. But whatever you can say about that, the worst part about hell, for whatever else might, might be the case, is that you are away from the gracious, glorious presence of God. You are relationally estranged, and, and, and there is no grace remaining for you. There is no grace, at least, which means, by the way, that for unbelievers who, who do, do not repent and believe, this is the closest thing to heaven and the new heavens and new earth they will ever taste. At least here, rain falls on the crops of the just and the unjust in, common, in God's common grace. At least here, evil people still beat cancer through the common grace of modern technology and medicine and all the rest. No grace eternally, forever, end of conversation. Let me just say here, and I hope everyone understands, the, the, understands what I'm about to say charitably. I desperately would love, in my, at least at some part of my being, understood the right way, I would love for annihilationism or even something like universalism, where everyone goes to heaven, to be true. I would love for that to be true because I don't want anyone. This sounds terrible. It is terrible. I would love to believe that people would just disappear. I would love to believe that everyone makes it and love wins. But the, but the Bible makes it unmistakably clear that that is not true. That is not true. 
People will suffer. The smoke of their torment, Revelation, will rise forever and ever. This is a terrifying doctrine that no one would make up if you were trying to come up with a religion, by the way, to draw everyone in. It's horrifying. It's a horrifying prospect that meets the unbeliever. And now, just to refresh your memory again, 1 Thessalonians 4, we have this passage already. When is this going to happen? When is this going to happen? Paul seems to be really concerned about telling us when it's going to happen. Verse 10. When are they going to be punished with eternal destruction? Verse 10, when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at at all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Let me just reiterate the point I made in 1 Thessalonians. I simply do not see how unbelievers endure unjudged past the return of Jesus. I mean, if Paul was trying to communicate that Christ will judge unbelievers when he returns, and they will suffer sudden destruction. I don't know what other language you could use. I don't know what else he would say. I don't know what else we could reasonably expect him to say. That is why there is an urgency, brothers and sisters, to repent and believe the gospel throughout the entire New Testament. That's why there is the urgency. Because when Christ comes, there is no hope for the people who have not obeyed God and do not know. They're the ones who will suffer eternal destruction. So we need to repent and believe because the master of the house is coming at a time you don't expect. So you need to be prepared. Preparedness. Christ is coming. He's talked about afflicting the afflictors. He's talked about giving relief to the faithful. But then he actually gives us the ultimate purpose there in that second half. He's going to come on that day. He's going to do these things, but He is going to be glorified in His saints to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. I think the, the marveled at among here helps us understand the glorified in. There's a lot of discussion. What exactly does it mean in this particular passage that He's going to be glorified in, to glorified in His saints I think marveled at among his saints, that they are marveling at him, helps us to understand, at least right here, what it means that he will be glorified in them. He says that the fullness of his glory, a glory that, that Moses could not even see or it would kill him, is going to be revealed and we will not be able to do anything except worship. I was trying to find an illustration or some vocabulary to make this sound more glorious so you could feel the weight of this, but I didn't have any. This will be so glorious that it, what, what is being described here, regardless if it's exactly the same kind of glory that Moses couldn't see, is this just is the glory of Jesus with His heavenly entourage, whatever. It will be so glorious that the only thing we will be able to do is to sit there with our jaws dropped or our faces on the ground or something. And we will marvel. We will marvel at the, at the Word of God become flesh, resurrected in power, and now descending as the bridegroom. It will be the most marvelous moment in history. And then Paul provides the prayer that functions as an exhortation. As an exhortation to the Thessalonians. And you're going to hear the same language from back up in verse 5. Listen carefully. To this end, we always... Pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling. 
Same phrase, by the way, considered worthy in verse 5, tisk tisk ESV. Okay, exact same word translated considered worthy in one place and make worthy in another. It's just bad, folks. You've got to translate the same word the same way in the same passage unless there's reason not to. He is going to make worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. God is working in us so that we will be worthy. Not, to again, to be very clear, not that we will merit God's just judgment over us. That's not it. Not worthy in that sense. But that we will be made fit citizens for the kingdom calling. How does that happen? It happens through, I would suggest, the suffering. That makes it into it. As God works in us, He uses suffering and He uses our endurance to form us, to mold us, to shape us. God is making us worthy of His calling to be the objects of his just judgment. He is the guarantor that this will happen because, again, the God who calls comes through. Notice how similar this is to the end of 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, excuse me, 23, 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. God is the object. God's the one doing this. And make your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He will surely do it. And so Christ is forming us in a way that includes suffering that the hands of oppressors on our way to glory that will publicly justify the kind of judgment we just read about. In other words, maybe here's a way to help get our hands around it. Reading the passage backwards, you could say this. Do you see how God in final judgment is afflicting one set of people and granting relief to another set of people? Is that just? Let's zoom back in history and see. Oh, the people who are getting afflicted down here were doing the, afflicted down, doing the afflicting down here. And the people being uh, granted relief down here were the ones being persecuted and afflicted, and afflicted down here. He's reversing it. This is judgment. That is the just judgment of God. That is evidence of God's justice. Paying back those who afflict His people and granting, granting relief. And Paul ends with a glorious, glorious climax here. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a double glorification that crowns the Christian hope. Certainly, as Paul has just mentioned, God will be glorified in His saints, but in a way that does not take away from His glory at all. In fact, it is... It, 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 um, it enlarges His glory, properly understood, not that it needs augmentation, but in a way that is appropriately expresses and acknowledges God's glory, perhaps, and displays His glory, we will be glorified as well. We are awaiting the promise that one day our lowly bodies will be transformed so that they will be like His what? His glorious body. Colossians 3, 4, one day when Christ appears, we'll appear with, we'll appear with Him in glory. In glory. No, so, so just this is so important, and especially in a culture where people will seek at so much affirmation and, and they feel like they just have to be a somebody. 
That no matter how little of an influencer you are, no matter how little physical ability you have, no matter how little cognitive capacity that you have, glory is coming to you. Glory is coming to you. Not fake glory. Not like, oh, just kind of spiritual glory. In the, if someone were to write a history from in the beginning God created and the end of Revelation 22 and, and enduring forever all of that, this, you, are, you will end up being a big player in that. You will be glorious. So much so that Paul will say, you will judge angels. You will rule. You will be a co-heir with Christ. Glory is coming. Real glory is coming. So don't try to pull it back into the present now and earn it for yourself and seek after it. It's promised to you. Patiently endure the afflictions the suffering as God is molding you for every good work toward the end of just judgment. Christians should be encouraged by their endurance of affliction in the present because it makes them fit for God's righteous judgment in the future. We can look and say, yes, that's a just judgment there. What does it look like then to live ahead of holy vengeance? What does that look like? What does it even mean? Say a couple of things here. The first is to, to, to not waste your suffering. Don't waste it. Some of you have heard Dr. Piper say this. We've addressed it from the pulpit before. Remember that suffering itself doesn't make anyone more holy or stronger or anything like that. Sometimes, and you've known them, maybe you've been them, Suffering makes people more bitter, less grateful, more pessimistic. It doesn't do anything good for them. It's not some automatic sanctification pill, suffering. How we move through suffering determines what suffering will do for us and how we are molded and shaped by it. So don't waste the opportunity. Don't waste the opportunity and don't think that suffering means physical torture or imprisonment or threat of death. Learn from your suffering. And you're, when you're suffering, whatever it looks like, socially, culturally, physically, whatever it is, in this context, it's at the hand of oppressors. But what might God expose that you tend to cling to too tightly? What might you suffering in a particular way show that you just cling to a little too tightly? In this life. Should be clinging to Christ that tightly. But it's something else that gives you a little bit more. Practical relief. On a Tuesday morning. In your suffering. How vast is the chasm. Between how you profess to deal with suffering. And how you practically do it. In the run of life. What do I do in suffering? I turn to Christ. That's great theology. Now. If someone's a. Fly on the wall in your home, in your office. How do you practically cope? And how, how is there a vast chasm between your professed theology of suffering and enduring it and what you actually do? How can suffering help you realize that? In your suffering, how can you become more dependent on Christ? Don't waste your suffering. Don't waste your suffering. It's guaranteed, even if it comes in different 
forms. God is using that to help make you fit, to help make you worthy of the calling of his kingdom and glory. So walk in a manner worthy of God. Second, Christians will be vindicated, not merely saved. This is so important. The Christian hope includes vindication, not just deliverance from affliction. We can imagine someone being, for example, accused of something terrible they didn't do, but somehow they got rescued out of jail, and shipped off to you know this parad- paradise, and they live out their life in a over-the-water bungalow in Dubai with no problems, and it's nice. They get delivered, but they don't get vindication. They finish out their life saved, but with a bat with a ruined name. No vindication. The Christian hope includes vindication. That's what this is. That's what this pictures, that there will be justification. So the word is literally translated that way a couple of times in Scripture. Remember in Luke 12, Jesus says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing that's covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, and he gives a little proverb that would have been easily understood in the original culture. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the rooftops. Every, every Jew would have known, yeah, final judgment, nothing slips, and nothing slips into a forgotten past. Remember in Matthew 12, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak, and listen to the word he used, for by your words you will be justified. Same word, vindicated, justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. Public justification, public vindication is coming, and Christ is preparing you for that moment. Number three, allow the approaching reality of devastating payback in public, I told you so, to temper personal vindictiveness and bitterness. I think this one is a hard one for a lot of people to swallow because it's hopefully not how we're used to acting. But that doesn't mean it shouldn't enter into our thought life as a process, as a part of a promised future. That's In fact, this is why Paul says, do not take vengeance into your own hands. The Lord is the avenger. Vengeance is coming. But you're not the one who's going to do it. God can do a lot better job of it than you can. God's payback is way better than what you have to offer the person who has afflicted you as a Christian. And I hope that thinking of it like that can help temper our vindictiveness and bitterness in two ways. One, simply because... God can enact a payback in affliction that is far better than what you and I can do, suffering at the hands of unbelievers, being ostracized, being scoffed at, made fun of. But secondly, because of how horrendous punishment for unbelievers will be. I said how terrifying this passage is. But my hope is when you read this, you look at unbelievers, many of whom are very, very confidently wrong. And brothers and sisters, these are people whistling through the graveyard headed to eternal destruction. So perhaps it helps us have compassion on them for that reason 
as opposed to simply wanting our honor and our name to be vindicated. Perhaps we can have compassion now and know, hey, one day there will be an account of every careless word. You will get vindication. And then finally, allow the promise of glory then fuel humility now. We all want glory. We really do. We really do. We were all born for glory. And yet, because of the fall, the vast majority of us could not claim to be very glorious in any shape or form or fashion. And those who could are nevertheless, whether physically, intellectually, financially, socially, whatever, that could claim some glory for themselves are only the dimmest reflection of the glory that they were actually made for. Almost a totally different category. But let the promise that glory is coming for you embrace humility. Now, humility isn't something that has no end. Humble yourselves under the hand of God so that what? You may be exalted. Exaltation is the end of humility. Humble yourselves or you may be exalted you will actually be someone in the scope of human history. You've lined up all the people who have ever lived in the group of people who will end up in glorified bodies. Christians will be included. And they will be the glorious, most glorious people who have ever lived. It won't even be, won't even be close. So whether it's vindication, whether it's vengeance, whether it's glory, these things that are coming, all of these things that are coming... Let's be people who live in light of the promise of those things, but are not in our own personal lives seeking to pull them back in the present for personal satisfaction. Oh, it's so tempting. I know that I try to dip into future vindication, future glory, and I try to chase those things now. Let's not try to pull them back into the present for our own satisfaction as we suffer and we are made fit for the public judgment of a righteous God and a glorious revelation because the God who calls will come through. He'll come through. Let's pray. God, when we read these words, we shudder at the prospect of judgment perfectly inflicted on those who do not know you. We pray for our unbelieving friends that you would help us minister to them, that you would use us as vessels to help them repent and believe, help us to have compassion on them. And Lord, help us as we suffer and endure afflictions, be steadfast like the Thessalonians. Being made fit, being made worthy by a sovereign God for judgment where a great reversal will happen and you will get great glory for it. Lord, would we live in the present, but live in the present in light of the end. Give us that grace, we ask in Jesus.